0: Job chapter 1. If you're unsure where Job is, you can find the Psalms. It is right before that book. Job chapter 1. We are pausing from our series in Luke to uh, reflect on and think about this past weekend, which for many of us was uh, a devastating weekend, though not personally affected. It was nonetheless devastating to hear of this lone gunman who entered classrooms at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown and opened fire, killing at least 20 children and 6 adults before turning the weapons on himself. And all weekend, if you were at all connected to the news, you saw anchors and radio hosts and newspaper editors groping for words as they sought to express their shock and their dismay at the atrocity that was committed. Not because we had never suffered violence in this country before, but perhaps because it was perpetrated on the most innocent and defenseless children in the school. Even then, we are not alone in our suffering this weekend. For the same day that the events took place in Newtown, children and teachers being gunned down in Connecticut, 22 students and teachers endured a knife attack at a school in the Henan province of China. In some ways, such events should not surprise us because of the times in which we live and the history we have experienced, even in the last decade, yet they still shock us. They still cause us to grieve and to mourn and to wonder about the world in which we live. That is the reality of suffering among us and what it does to us. And the question that we most often ask during this time is, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to them? Why is this happening at all if a good God exists and he is in control? And this morning we want to approach God and His Word with those questions in our mind. And we want to go to this book of Job that embodies the experience of suffering and the desire to know like no other book in the Bible. In this book called Job we see a man named Job who undergoes intense suffering and like so many ask the question, Why? as we look to this man, we need to understand we will not find easy answers. We will not find trite words or cliched responses. Instead, what Job excels in providing are bedrock foundational truths upon which we can lay our lives when it comes to times of suffering. Bedrock and foundational truths about God, which if we embrace, if we believe even as Job believed, we can begin to understand better this world and even prepare to endure through suffering that happens in our own life. So in order to um, do this this morning, we want to look at Job chapters 1 and 2, and I invite you to follow along as I read. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard all this evil that had come upon him, they came, each from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, Zophar, the Naamanite. They came, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. May God bless the reading of his word. In this book, Job is picturing every way to be a righteous man. Yet Satan makes the argument before God that he only obeys the Lord. He only has a, a form of righteousness because the Lord has prospered him. But the Lord knows that is not true and permits Satan to take away virtually all that he has. Yet even in that, Satan is not satisfied. He says the loss was all external. But if the loss becomes closer to home, if his body becomes a source of his suffering, then he will not remain loyal to God. And again, God permits Satan to attack him, this time in his health. But God knows what Satan simply will not believe. Job is blameless, and despite what happens to him, he will not curse God. In Job, we see a man who suffers greatly, and it's from his response, a response to that suffering, both here and throughout the book, that we not only learn about suffering and about God, but we find an example for how we should understand these things and respond to human suffering and the sovereignty of God. As Job serves as a lens for the teaching of the whole Bible, four central truths emerge that guide in our thinking about understanding, guide us in our thinking and understanding of suffering in this world. The first is this: we see the reality of human suffering. We see the reality of human suffering. We need to understand at the very outset: this is not a fairy tale. This is not a made-up story. This is not a parable. Job was a real man who lived a real life in this real world. This book is recounting for us historical events. And they show us how one man endured suffering and how that suffering reflects in part the suffering of us all. And in Job's suffering, we first see innocent suffering. We see innocent suffering we live in a sinful world, and sin has consequences. All sin has consequences. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. It doesn't matter if you want to know God or hate God. If you engage in sinful behavior, there are natural consequences that will cause your life to be anything from miserable to short. That's the nature of this world. If you get mad at somebody for stealing your parking place, and you ram into them with your car, you're going to pay the consequences. It might be a ticket. It might be jail time. It might be higher insurance rates. And for something like that, God can forgive you, but you still might go to jail. Likewise, we see even in 1 Corinthians 11 that God used suffering even to get his own people's attention, people who had professed faith in him. They go about profaning the Lord's table by their life to the degree that God actually sends sickness and disease and even death to come upon them to warn them and to discipline them and to get them to see what they are doing. They're still his people. They still go to heaven, but he disciplined them for their sin. That is a certain kind of suffering, but that's not, in fact, what I would argue the majority of the kind of suffering that we see in this world. So often today we see suffering that comes to those who are innocent. Suffering that comes to people without any direct connection to how they live their lives. Today alone, not just in a week or a month, but today in the course of these 24 hours, over 30,000 children will die around the world from starvation and preventable diseases. Has sin in their life caused that to come upon them? Hardly. Leaving aside whatever past the adults in Connecticut may have done, could the 20 children between the ages of 5 and 6 have done anything to deserve such a violent and unspeakable death that they received? No. No. Likewise with Job, his suffering was an innocent suffering. In fact, the author of the book, gets this right out of the way and tells us and wants us to be clear about this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, blameless does not mean sinless. Even Job knew he wasn't sinless, but offered the appropriate sacrifices for sins. Blameless rather speaks to the man's integrity. Along with the description of him being upright, we see that he was one who faithfully adhered to what he knew to be the righteous will of God. In this way, then, he was one who feared God and sought to turn away from evil. We were given more details in chapters 29 through 31. There, Job is recounting how he lived his life and sought to be blameless before God. We see that with his wealth, Job rescued the poor and the orphan. He assisted the dying and helped the widows. He never committed adultery. In fact, he made a covenant with his eyes not even to look lustfully at women. He knew God was ever watching and so always spoke truthfully in his business dealings and heard any complaint from his servants. Though of great wealth, Job never trusted in it, nor did he gloat over the less fortunate He offered sacrifices for his own sins, the sins of his family, acting as a priest, interceding for them. Here is a man who lived before God gave the law to Moses. Here is a man who lived before Christ ever came and gave instruction based on the cross. And yet, frankly, he puts most of us to shame in this room and how he lives his life. He is a blameless man. In the midst of the suffering that falls upon him, his friends, though silent in the opening chapters, get very verbose and begin to berate Job. Confess the wretched sin that you have hidden that has caused this calamity to be brought upon you. But the whole point of the book is God doesn't work that way. It is not tit for tat. It is not skin for skin as Satan believes. Job is blameless before God, and yet he suffers terribly. It is innocent suffering. But secondly, we also see both in Job's life and in the world there is unexpected suffering. There is unexpected suffering. Here's a man who seems to have everything going for him. In fact, from a society in which he lived that measured wealth largely by livestock and cattle, Job was a very rich man indeed. In fact, he is so wealthy, he is called the greatest of all the peoples of the East. And when the moment of suffering comes, it comes without warning. His children are in the middle of a party celebrating life when a windstorm comes and destroys the house and kills them all. The same day invaders come and run off with his animals and kill his servants. So yet fire from heaven consumes his sheep and only a handful of his servants remain to tell him the news of these things. In one moment, life is going in its fullness. Parties, work, normal life, and in the next, tragedy and suffering. There's no way he could have seen what was coming. Job wasn't doing anything to cause it, nor could he have done anything to stop it. His suffering came unexpectedly. And again, we wonder how normally must friday have begun for those students and teachers at sandy brook elementary if they were like my kids they may have been looking forward to it it being the last day of the week they may have even earned something special for their good behavior or some goal the class had for getting schoolwork done yet the day hardly begun when suffering into their lives and changed them forever One person has said that trying to prepare for suffering is like jumping into freezing cold water. You know what it will be like, but once you plunge into the icy depths, your breath is still taken away. Suffering comes unexpectedly, and when it does, it's painful. And this is what we see in Job's life, painful suffering. Job surely suffered emotionally, but more than that, he endured actual physical pain. He not only suffered the loss of his family and his wealth, but he also suffered the loss of his own health. Verse 7 says that Job was struck with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Now, if you read the whole book, you realize that's just the beginning. Later, we're told that whatever this illness was that he was struck with, here were his symptoms from Throughout the rest of the book, I won't bother quoting the verses, we had peeling skin, wart-like eruptions, loss of appetite, fever, sleeplessness, nightmares, foul breath, failing vision, and rotting teeth. So painful was Job's experience that when his friends came to check on him after hearing the news we read, they saw him from a distance and they did not recognize him. The kind of suffering Job experienced wasn't really unique, but it was painful emotionally and physically. Here was a man who didn't deserve the suffering he had. Here was a man who endured the suffering without warning. And this is the same kind of suffering that we experience today. It's the reality of, of suffering and life in a world marred by sin. But we also need to see another reality from this passage, perhaps one that we struggle to come to terms with. Nevertheless, we need to see it. We need to understand it. We need to believe it if we're going to make sense of suffering in this world. And that is this, the second truth that we see. We see the supremacy of God's sovereignty. We see the supremacy of God's sovereignty. Throughout this book, and especially in this passage, God is shown to be unequivocally sovereign at all times. That means he is the absolute sovereign over all things. Nothing happens apart from his will. We see first that God is sovereign over Satan. God is sovereign over Satan. You know, When I was younger, I used to have a view of Satan that basically saw him as the anti-God. Whatever God was, Satan was just in reverse, in evil. Essentially that meant that Satan was all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful. But this passage, and really the whole Bible says, just the opposite is true. Satan is like everything else besides God, a created being. And that means while God is limitless, Satan is limited. Though he may ravage God's people and seek to impugn God's name, he is only allowed to go so far. In fact, even here, he has to ask permission before he does anything to Job. God is sovereign over Satan. More than that, God is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over the nations. Notice that Job lives in Uz, and it's the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans that come to invade Job's lands and raid his cattle and kill his servants. The point in the immediate context is this. God is not some local deity. God is not just the God over the land in which Job lives. He is not just the God over the nation of Israel. He is not just the God over America. He is the God over every nation and people in this world. In Daniel 2, we read this, Praise be the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes the times and the seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. Did American people get the president they voted for this past November? Absolutely. Was that the president that God wanted in the Oval Office? Absolutely. He is sovereign over all things. Even today, when leadership and industry fail and economies plummet, God is still sovereign over the nations. When countries are at war, God is still sovereign over the nations. When nations are hardened to the gospel, persecuting our brothers and sisters in Christ, dragging them dead to the streets, trying to hinder the work of the church, God is still sovereign over the nations. He is also sovereign over creation. He is sovereign over creation. Verse 16 says that fire fell from heaven and burned up Job's sheep and servants. In verse 19 we are told that a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, causing it to fall upon his children, killing them. Who made the heavens and the earth is the question that God asked Job when he finally reveals himself at the end of the book. Were you there, Job, when I formed it, he asks. Were we there when God formed it? God is sovereign over all of nature, from the animals to the rain to the wind. And In Job chapter 37 we read that it is the breath of God that produces ice, and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. At his direction they swirl over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish men, or to water his earth and show his love. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's Wonders. So today, on the most beautiful day, as early light rain gives way to piercing sunlight spawning rainbows across the sky, God is sovereign. Likewise, when a superstorm of hurricane rain followed by snow and ice hits the northeast, God is sovereign. When a tornado tears through a small town, God is sovereign. When a tsunami hits Thailand and multiple typhoons converge over the Philippines, God is still sovereign over his creation. Job shows us that God is sovereign over Satan, he is sovereign over the nations, he is sovereign over creation, and he is sovereign over sickness. He is sovereign over sickness. We've already seen the terrible descriptions that Job gave to his illness, and in all of that, Job affirms that his afflictions came from God. In verse 21, his response to the loss of his wealth and family, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord taken it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Later, when he loses his health, his wife says, Why don't you just curse God and die? And Job said to her, You speak like one of the foolish women speak. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? And some will say, Job is flat out wrong here. Some who hold to something called process theology say that like everything else, God is an evolving being. He doesn't know everything. He isn't powerful over everything. So nothing actually comes from him. He isn't sovereign over suffering and evil. He may not even know that it's going to happen. And he certainly can't do anything to stop it. One example of this kind of thinking is from the famous Rabbi Harold Kushner. As he was reflecting on the death of his own son at the age of 14 from Brogeria, he wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. There he makes this argument, abandoning his Jewish heritage and beliefs. He says God is not all-powerful. He does not control the forces of nature, and therefore bad things will happen whether he wants them to or not. Now we may even be tempted to look at Job and say, no, Job, Job, you got it wrong. Satan was the one who did these things to you. We see it in the text. It was Satan's fault, Job, not God. These things did not come from God's hand. But what does Job say? The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? And that both times the divinely inspired author says this In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That means Job is right. Job understands that God is supremely sovereign over all things. Job knows that even when bad things happen, horrible things happen, it is not apart from his permissive sovereign control. The Bible is clear that God is sovereign Over these things and yet that does not make him the author of evil. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. God stands behind evil differently than he stands behind good. So it is clear from the text that Satan is doing these things. He is the instrument of these things. And yet Job rightly says nothing happens apart from God's sovereign hand. God was not the one who reached down and put his finger of of power and gave disease to Job. Satan did that, but Satan is not beyond the control of God. The question for us then becomes, what do we do with these two truths? What do we do with the reality of human suffering and the sovereignty of God's control? And here again, Job provides the example for us. For we see in him the worship of humble submission. The worship of humble submission. At the end of chapter 2, we were introduced to Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These are ones who come and do not even recognize Job after his ordeal. And we read that they raised their voices, and they wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Let me just say, this is the only good thing they do in the book. The moment they open their mouths, it it, it falls apart. And frankly, there's a lesson to be learned there. There are times when the suffering in someone's life is so great, do not say anything to them, except maybe, I love you. Just sit with them, feel their pain, and mourn with them. Weep with them, grieve with them. For the next 30-some chapters, what they say to Job was essentially this. What secret have you committed that has brought all of this upon you? Obviously, you've sinned. You've done something or else God would not have visited all this trouble upon you. Confess your sins and God may take it all away. And Job tries to explain, look, I I haven't done anything that would cause me to deserve this. And that only makes them mad. And they continue to argue, and Job rightly insists his innocence in all of this. He admits he is sinful, but he has no secret terrible sin that would merit all this. He regularly repents of his sins, offering the appropriate sacrifice. And yet, in the course of all these endless debates, Job gets worn down, and he does succumb to one sin, and that sin is this. He presumes that God owes him an answer. Job's one fault is that he presumes that God is indebted to him to give him the answer to the question, why? In chapter 38, after all of Job's friends are done talking, God comes down and he talks. And he reveals himself to Job and for four chapters he reminds Job of who he is. As the Lord God, he reminds him of his unrelenting glory. He says that he alone is the maker of heaven and earth. He alone made all the forces of nature and keeps them in check. He alone hung the stars in the universe and set their courses. He alone created the dinosaurs and the wild beasts which no man can tame. He alone gave wisdom and skill even to the smallest of creatures that they might survive in this world of sin and death. God alone has done all these things and so much more. And in the end, Job says, I need to close my mouth before God. I must submit to him, and he shows us that we should do the same because there are, for two reasons. we should submit first of all, because we will not always understand. We do not always understand. in chapter forty two job says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Again, Job was not repenting of any secret sin that his friends accused him of. Job is repenting of questioning God. He says, you have come before me, and just in the course of... 20 minutes if it's just a, a verbation of what God said to Job. I have so been captured by the glory of God and the reality of who he is before me. I, I have nothing that I can say against him. Who am I, a man, to speak and to question God? He repeats God's question back to him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job says it was me. I tried to offer counsel without knowledge. Job stands in the place of all of us in the reality that we will never understand all things the way God does. He can see the beginning from the end, and we can't. We are like the man who goes to the airport for the first time, and he looks out at the runway, and he sees all of the planes circling above. He sees them taxiing down, going this way and that way, and it looks like a chaotic mess, and he wonders if he will ever survive, and if any plane will ever make it safely back to the tower. To the man in the control tower ordering the planes in and directing their paths and seeing the pattern, it's all plain to see that it's working well. When we experience suffering, though, we don't sit in the control tower. We sit on the tarmac. We sit in the plane. We sit in the terminal in a chair that's not comfortable, scratching our heads, wondering how does it all make sense. We cannot and should not expect an immediate or even an ultimate answer to the question, why? Why? because we do not and never will this side of heaven have the same kind of understanding of reality that God has. More than that, in worship we should submit because we have one worth trusting. We have one worth trusting. The most amazing thing about Job in the course of this book is that he never once doubts that he can trust God. He never once doubts that God is just. In fact, when he first hears the terrible of fate that has befallen his family, what does he say? The author says, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And tearing his robe and shaving his head, he is acknowledging the pain of his suffering. He didn't blow it off. He didn't put his head in the sand and kind of ignore it. He didn't put on the stiff upper lip and the brave face and just kind of saunter on, not really thinking about the reality of what happened. No, he felt it to his core. It's not false bravado. And yet in humble submission to God, he still worships. In the end, he can do this because even in the midst of this terrible suffering, Job still trusted God. And remember, remember, for us in some ways, it it might be easy because we've seen the throne room of heaven. We've seen the accusation that Satan made against Job, and we know why these things are happening. Job has never revealed that. Job has no knowledge of that. What he did have knowledge, though, was of God's character. And it was his power to... And his goodness that he banked his life on and was able to steady him through suffering. So much so that in chapter 13 he says, though God slay me, I will hope in him. Here we have a window into the character of God that engenders faith amidst suffering. In Job 12 we see that God with him are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. In Psalm 107, we were reminded that we should give thanks to the Lord for he is good. John reminds us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is always righteous. He never does anything evil or wicked. And so to Abraham, the assurance is given. Even in the midst of the worst situations, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Perhaps the most convincing display of God's worth, though, for our trust and our hope and our worship is seen in the glory of gracious salvation. The glory of gracious salvation. We can not only believe that God is sovereign, that God is good, but that God is also acquainted with our suffering. That is what we see in the cross. And the cross shows us two things. First, that we need salvation from sin. That we need salvation from sin. Earlier we spoke about innocent suffering. Here we need to make the point, and that is this. In an ultimate sense, no one is innocent before God. No one is innocent before God because we have all sinned in some way. We have seen His glory and we have rejected it. We have rebelled against His rule. We have sought to go our own way. The relationship that we were made to know and love and enjoy with Him, we have destroyed and defaced and debased. And the result is that God is justly going to condemn us for for our sins. But in His mercy, in His goodness, in His love, God is willing to save us from sin. God is willing to save us despite our rejection of Him and the suffering that we inflict in this world. In fact, the very salvation He offers comes from an atoning work of suffering. Thus, while we need salvation from sin, God ensures we have salvation through suffering. God ensures that we have salvation through suffering, not our suffering but the suffering of another. So many people in the news this weekend lamented the fact that the events of Newtown were doubly tragic because they took place so close to the Christmas holiday. Maybe. Maybe, but I have to wonder if people really think that. Do they they really understand what Christmas is about? Have they really read the Christmas story? Even the birth of Christ himself was marred by suffering as a wicked king feared for his life and his reign, his power over people. And so he ordered the deaths of children born near the time and place of Jesus' own birth. How many died that day? Perhaps as many as at Newtown. That tragic day, Jesus himself escaped suffering because an angel warned his parents of Herod's murderous rage and they fled to Egypt. But Jesus didn't escape suffering forever. In fact, Jesus came to show God's presence and power in the very midst of suffering and death. Being the very Son of God, Jesus took on flesh and He lived among us. He lived as one of us. He experienced the full range of human suffering, even as we do, from illness to the loss of loved ones. Jesus experienced it. But more than that, He willingly endured the ultimate suffering so that sinners might be made right with God. For on the cross, Jesus provided the needful payment for salvation by pouring out his own life under the condemnation of sin, our sin. The condemnation that we deserved. Jesus was our substitute before God, taking what we deserved, so that we might be forgiven for our sins and enjoy life with God forever. Thus David Platt is surely right when he says this, when we consider all the scripture teaches about God and evil, we are led inextricably to the gospel. The good news that God has taken the very worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, the death of a son, and he has turned it into the very best thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, the salvation of sinners. Evil is tragically real. God is supremely great. God is absolutely good. And the gospel is shockingly glorious. In the end, the story of Job ends like the story of Christ. In the very last chapter, we read, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, the name of the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Just as God restored glory to Job, so also God restored glory to his son. For after he died on the cross, he raised him back to life and gave him eternal glory at his own right hand. Just like Job, Jesus shows us that God will one day vindicate the righteous. It may not be in this life, but it will surely be in the next. God doesn't put you through suffering now without the promise of heaven later. God is just, and one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and bring into existence a world without sin, without suffering, without pain. In this life, evil and suffering may be mysterious, but they will never, ever be triumphant. Therefore, in the end, the message is this. You may not ever get an answer to the question, why? Why you or your loved ones or the people of Newtown had to endure suffering, but you can endure it. You can even find peace in it by drawing close to God. He is powerful. He is sovereign. He is wise. He is good. And He knows your suffering. In Christ, it is clear that He is a God worth trusting. Father, may we trust you this morning. May we trust you both when the sun is shining and when the rain is falling. God, may we trust you all the days of our life. Even in the mysteries of this world in which we cannot see clearly, may you be supreme for you are good. You are sovereign. You are just. When everything else falls away, God, we can have confidence in you. Father, it is from the very beginning. From the very beginning, it has been the lie of Satan to tell us that you are not good. That you do not love us. That you do not give us the things that we need. But Father, we know that 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 is a lie. And it was that very lie that brought death and suffering and sickness and disease into this world. Father, in the midst of tragedy now, help us not believe that lie but help us have confidence in you as we look to your Son and see that you are not only good, but you know our suffering, for you yourself have experienced it. You are great, you are glorious, you are worthy of our faith and our worship. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.